I think there's also a realization that the military solution, it has had its successes, but has basically not been able to quell the Anglophone rebellion. Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast for the foreign policy and global development communities and anyone who wants a deeper understanding of what is driving events in the world today. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg. I am a veteran international affairs journalist and the editor of UN Dispatch. Enjoy the show. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. In early January, news emerged that Canadian Foreign Minister Melanie Jolie was facilitating peace talks between the government of Cameroon and Anglophone separatist groups. The news came as what is sometimes referred to as the Anglophone crisis enters a seventh year of armed conflict. The conflict stems from the perceived marginalization of English-speaking regions in the largely Francophone country. Since fighting broke out in 2017, the consequences have been absolutely devastating. Thousands have been killed and over 800,000 people have been displaced by fighting. Children, in particular, are bearing the brunt of this crisis. 700,000 children have had their education disrupted as schools are largely closed in the conflict-affected areas. I'm joined today by Ari Elvis Ntui, who is a senior analyst on Cameroon for the International Crisis Group. He explains how and why this conflict started and why previous attempts at peace talks have failed. He then explains why all sides of this conflict should heed this new Canadian-led initiative to facilitate peace talks. Today's episode is produced in part through the support of the Carnegie Corporation of New York, and it is part of a series of episodes featuring African expertise on peace and security issues in Africa. Please follow or subscribe to the podcast to access all episodes that are part of this series. And now here is my conversation with Ari Elvis Intui of the International Crisis Group, and we caught up while he was in Cameroon. Can you take listeners back to... 2016 and explain how this conflict began the conflict currently pitting cameroon government forces against anglophone rebels active in cameroon's northwest and southwest regions actually started in its recent inception around 2016 
Now, in the year 2016, Anglophone lawyers and teachers were protesting what they referred to as assimilation by the Francophone majority of Cameroon. It's worth noting that Anglophones constitute 20% of Cameroon and they are mostly based in the Northwest and Southwest regions. So the lawyers and teachers felt that the Francophone majority, and especially the Francophone-led government, was encroaching into areas where they felt the Anglophone identity was being lost, especially in education, in using excessive use of French teachers to teach Anglophone children, excessive use of French in courts in the Anglophone regions, which are more used to common law tradition practiced in Anglo-Saxon jurisdictions. So the lawyers and teachers went out into the streets to protest. They called on the population to follow suit. As a result, we had a period of general strikes where the intention from the Anglophone public was to pass on the message that they were fed up with these events and they felt that this had been going on decade after decade because if you go far back into the history of Cameroon, in fact, as far back as the reunification around 1961, you see elements of discomfort in the relations between the Anglophone minority and the Francophone majority. So it was essentially a middle-class revolt of, of professionals, of teachers and lawyers who were protesting what they perceived to be French encroachment on their Anglophone professional lives, on teaching and in the court systems. And, you know, I take it these protests back in 2016 were not particularly violent, but they were met with violence. I'm not too sure if we can say this was a middle-class affair. It's just better to call it a thing that cut across the full spectrum of the Anglophone society, from low levels, obviously, to very high levels. Even politicians, some of whom, because they were close to the government or were in the government, could not freely express themselves. But many privately did identify with the struggles of Anglophones in the United country, and they found themselves in a really difficult position because they were in government, but their people were protesting some of the operations of the government in their areas. So it's a combination of things. Though it sprang up from lawyers' protest, immediately followed by teachers' protest and general uh, civil society, it tended to reflect a general unease Anglophones had had in their relationship with the government in the United Cameroon. And this had been going on for several years. The Anglophone lawyers particularly were complaining that Francophone judges were being deployed to common law jurisdictions where the language of expression of the court is expected to be English and were obliging lawyers and witnesses and plaintiffs and defendants to make submissions in French, for example. The teachers' associations were concerned that a number of Francophone, French-speaking professionals had been deployed to schools in the Anglophone regions, especially in technical education, where the government claimed that the Anglophones had some deficiencies 
in terms of professionals to teach these subjects. But it tended to resonate with the wider Anglophone public because in many other aspects of life in Cameroon, including in the general administration, right beyond the Anglophone regions, Anglophones have always felt and always complained over the decades that they were not being treated equally or as fairly as they would expect in a country where they should be equal with anyone in the United Cameroon. So you have these protests initially by, as you said, lawyers and teachers, but resonate deeply within Anglophone society throughout the Northwest and Southwest Cameroon. How did the government respond to these protests back in 2016 and 2017? Firstly, it's important to note, as you try to infer to, that these protests were very peaceful. In the beginning, these were lawyers in their robes, in their wigs, in the streets, without the general population taking part in this uh, street protest, march pass, just walking up the streets and going to court to submit petitions to the heads of court. And then even when the teachers joined and called for the rest of the public parents' teachers' associations to join the protest, the runner called for a sit-in and a sort of boycott of schools rather than massive street demonstrations in a general concern to avoid violence. So these were largely peaceful. Although police and gendarmes later on did try to break up some of the lawyers' protests violently. So the lawyers felt that the government should make some immediate changes. Now, the government at first reacted really slowly. It was a period of almost a year of exchange of letters or more of lawyers and teachers writing to government ministers to warn them of their concerns, but they had had little satisfactory response, which is what pushed them to the level of doing the protests and calling for the general strikes. Now, when these protests started, the government started paying attention and called for some action to be taken. A number of ministers were sent from Yaoundé to Bamenda. Bamenda is the largest Anglophone city. It's based in the Northwest region. It's really a crucible of the current conflict. So in late 2016, several government ministers gathered there in a meeting with Anglophone teachers, unions, trade leaders, to try to find solutions to their grievances. They did agree on certain items, on funding, for example, on the redeployment of teachers who could not express themselves appropriately in English, as the Anglophone unions expected, and a number of other small items. But to crown it all, the Anglophone civil society movement, including teachers and lawyers, insisted that to protect any agreement or any resolutions that the government made, the country needed to move to a federal structure, which they deemed would sort of guarantee that the authorities in Yaoundé would not get up the following day and renege on some of the promises they had made in the meetings that had in Bamenda to try to resolve their grievances. On the judicial side, the government made a number of promises, a promise to redeploy some of the uh, judges who were not comfortable in English, and also to develop 
a core of judicial officers who will be competent in both languages, and another core of specialized interpreters and translators who could work in court to facilitate movement from one language to the other. The government also agreed to create a law school, which it called a higher institute of the judicial studies. But overall, they did not finalize this agreement because the Anglophones felt that they had had several decades of grumbling, of complaining, of petitioning the central government in Yaoundé and had been met by promises or some open action which later on did not get to the end to fully satisfy them. And they felt that they should return to a federal structure of the country so that the Anglophones themselves will be able to guard and protect any agreements or any gains they made in the arrangements with the government. So it would seem that this early effort to forestall conflict failed and failed in really devastating ways. There was, as you describe, a potential opportunity to prevent this protest movement from escalating to violent conflict, but it did escalate to violent conflict. How did it become so deadly so quickly? I think what happened actually underlines the fact that the levels of trust between the Francophone-led government, which governs Cameroon, and the Anglophones is really very low. It's so low that they hardly rely on each other's promises and each party wanted concrete action. For example, uh, the government ministers who went to Yaoundé wanted the Anglophones to sign up to a resolution at the end that they had called off the school boycotts and that they, they also hoped separately that the lawyers would call off the boycott of the court. But the Anglophone civil society leaders, at least those who, the syndicates who were in charge of school teachers' trade unions, felt that they had a responsibility to go back to the Anglophone public and explain the government's offer and hear from the public and thereafter they will come back with a response. And they requested a few days for them to be able to do that. That was somewhere in the beginning of January 2017. Now, the government felt that that time wasting was suspicious. And in one of the last nights of the negotiations, there was a bit of violence in the streets in Yaoundé, but nothing really significant, major. But there was a bit of tension and the Anglophone public, which had gathered around the conference center where these discussions were taking place, were insisting that the teachers who were representing the Anglophone teachers' unions should not betray them and had to consult the public. When this team of government representatives returned to Yaoundé, the government feared that the nature in which the talks had ended might mean that the population might be whipped up to protest or to rebel against the state. And so the government now ushered in some more tougher actions, having deemed that, okay, they had offered negotiations, then made some compromises and made some promises to these Anglophone civil society groups, and that now, at that time, it had to take some more tough action. And so the government turned around and banned the Cameroon Anglophone Civil Society Consortium which was an umbrella body that included teachers' representatives, 
representatives of lawyers associations, the four main law associations in the Anglophone uh, regions, comprising lawyers from Boya, Lawyers Association, Kumba, Mamfe. And these are all regions in Cameroon? Yes, they're all in Cameroon. So the government decided to ban the consortium and also to reban the Southern Cameroon's National Council and started arresting the leaders of these civil society associations with whom they had been negotiating a few days earlier. From that point, I think we crossed another point of escalation in the crisis between the government and the Anglophone movement. So it's been seven years since the outbreak of violent conflict. Hundreds of thousands of people have been displaced. I saw something like half a million children are out of school as a result of this conflict. What have been some of the dynamics of this conflict and who are the active combatants at this point seven years on? The conflict has changed its phases from this time it started at the end of 2017 to this first quarter of 2023. Now, in the beginning, because the government cracked down heavily on pro-independence demonstrations of 1st October 2017 and uh, the one before that, 22nd of September 2017, small, small groups of young people started coming together to protest, to block roads, and to defend themselves, as they explained, from the armies crackdown, from the army, government army coming into their neighborhoods, arresting them. Several people were shot in those demonstrations. Hundreds of Anglophones were arrested. Some were taken away to Yaoundé, the capital, and detained there. From that year, gradually, small, small militias began forming around the Anglophone regions. Uh, sometimes very close to the border with Nigeria, which is a very thick forested area and hasn't gotten very much of a government presence there. And then in 2018, we witnessed a kind of intensive roadblocks by these uh, emerging militias whose main weaponry then were maybe sticks, rudimentary tools like knives, machetes, but also then guns, which some basically collected from their parents who are hunters and some who have been used for traditional ceremonies and traditional rites. And then in 2019, the militia started organizing themselves in various groups. There were about a dozen of them then. That's around the time President Bia called for a national dialogue to resolve the conflict. We may have an opportunity to come back to the, to the nature of that dialogue. But the main point is that the government excluded, unfortunately, the key stakeholders in the conflict, that's those who were demanding separation from taking part in that dialogue. The dialogue held from the 30th of September to the 4th of October in 2019 and came out with a number of resolutions, which the government hoped was going to calm down the Anglophone public, but that didn't work as planned. Violence actually intensified, and some of the delegates who had, in all goodwill, left the Anglophone regions to go and attend the dialogue in Yaoundé, found themselves trapped over there, unable to return to their localities and being targeted or promised a reprisal attacks by the armed separatists for taking part in what they regarded as an improper dialogue. 
Then we moved into 2020, where the armed Anglophone militias started to change their weaponry, started having access to more of army-type, government forces-type assault light weapons and assault rifles. And while the government also deployed its forces across the Anglophone regions to clear the roads, it did actually clear a number of roads which the Anglophone militants had blocked some for, for several weeks during lockdowns or sometimes in those towns. And then the final thing that happened is that the militias basically upgraded their weaponry. They have now had access to rocket-propelled grenades. They are placing improvised explosive devices in many parts of the Anglophone uh, regions. And now they have similar weapons, light weapons, like those used by the government forces. Where do you suspect they got those weapons from? From the videos which we have seen separatist rebels posting online, a lot of these weapons have actually come from them attacking Cameroon government security posts, gendarmerie's police stations, or attacking army convoys and seizing weapons. A very small number in the beginning, say somewhere around 2018, 2019, appeared to have been borrowed or loaned or acquired from some of the remnants of the rebel movements or the militants in the Niger Delta in Nigeria. But the bulk of the weapons have come from attacks on the security post. So you've described conflict dynamics since the outbreak of this crisis almost seven years ago that are very much escalatory in which separatists and the government are increasingly fighting each other with greater firepower, all to the devastation of civilians caught in the crossfire. And it's in this context that I was very surprised to see earlier this year, I believe it was January, that Canadian Foreign Minister Melanie Jolie started popping up on the scene seeking to help negotiate an end to this conflict. And seemingly Canada's intervention here would make sense given its own unique history in negotiating linguistic rights for, in Canada, the French minority in Quebec. What to you explains Canada's intervention here? We had what uh, was referred to as the Swiss Initiative. The Swiss Federal Ministry for Foreign Affairs did state that he had received some green light to try to help to organize the parties to facilitate them talking to each other to resolve the conflict. But from 2019 to mid-2022, that didn't really go anywhere, even though the Swiss had managed to put together some of the Anglophone pro-independence movements and organizing them, waiting for, for talks. Then finally, we had the Canadian Facilitation Initiative. And by the way, the government itself had also made some moves by going to speak to some of the separatist leaders incarcerated in Yaoundé. But that was also blocked by some other members of government who did not like that particular initiative. So I think the Canadian Initiative has come as a result of both parties, especially the government, realizing that it's getting almost past six years and this long-running conflict, and it was necessary to try some other things. 
to try to resolve the conflict in a more political than a violent orientation. For now, we haven't got too much detail about the functioning or uh, the way the Canadian facilitation is organized, except that Canada did admit that it had received a go-ahead from both parties to provide a forum which could facilitate them engaging to try to resolve the conflict. I think their engagement is basically defined that the conflict is entering its seventh year, that children were basically grown up knowing nothing but conflict, and the government is obviously concerned for the future of the country, for the future of these young people who know nothing but violence, who have lost part of their childhood. And I think there's also a realization that the military solution, it has had its successes, but has basically not been able to quell the Anglophone rebellion. I think the government is out shopping for something that could help it to resolve this conflict. So there's not too much publicly known about the contours of this Canadian mediation efforts. I think that's probably deliberate. They're trying to kind of keep it under wraps a a bit. But thus far, from what's publicly known, to what extent have these sides been receptive to these efforts to, you know, even pre-talks or or, or just kind of sitting down with each other under the rubric of Canadian-led mediation efforts? I think what we've learned from the exchanges and communications in January is that the four major separatist groupings, Anglophone separatist groups, have agreed to the Canadian facilitated talks. I think a fit one has also joined that initiative, announced that we're going to join the, that initiative. So on the side of the pro-independence and reform movements, it's clear that they are ready, they are willing and open for dialogue to try to resolve this conflict. But I think a couple of days after the Canadian announcement and after the separatists had also announced their intention to abide by this facilitation, the government spokesperson announced that it was making a U-turn on this and that it had not mandated anybody to try to facilitate this. I think it just shows that the government is struggling to refine its position and come to a common understanding, maybe amongst various departments of government, on how to approach a resolution of this Anglophone conflict, which is raging in the country. So to be clear, you know, as we're speaking now, the government has not publicly sort of backed this effort or come out in favor of this Canadian mediation to the same extent that you said now five separatist groups have signaled that they're willing to participate, but it's the government right now that is holding things back. Yeah, actually the government, we had the last statement of the government towards the end of January that it was not involved in any talks. I understand that the parties involved in this are speaking to each other through various channels to try to resolve this. The Canadians did issue a statement or a quote to say that these things are usually very difficult. It's something that they are looking at very keenly and working on it. I think that these talks, all this facilitation may have just been paused while uh, the government reassesses its position 
and maybe uh, tries to formulate uh, its position better or to decide on what format these talks could go on before it could engage or something like that, because it would be very disappointing if the government stayed on its position to say it was not going to enter into these talks. Crisis Group has highlighted uh, before in a statement all the benefits which the government can gain from this facilitation opportunity. It's seven years. For once, they've had the separatists who have come together and are willing to negotiate. They have clear interlocutors and the conflict is actually having a very disastrous toll on the country and is beginning to show a contagion to affect some of the neighboring regions and even beyond into wider Cameroonian fabric. Yeah, I mean, we discussed early in this conversation how talks to prevent the outbreak of violence failed spectacularly seven years ago. And the reason I wanted to speak with you today is because it does seem that we're at this moment where there is an opportunity to end this conflict, yet it seems that opportunity is not being fully embraced, which could prolong this real devastating conflict. You know, hundreds of thousands of civilians displaced, thousands of people killed, and just a huge lost opportunity for an entire generation of Cameroonians, young people in particular. Yes, Mark, I think the main problem here is trust and the fact that some people on the government side still do think that they can explore the military option further, which so far, after almost seven years of fighting, has not yielded the results which the government expected in the beginning. So lastly, in the coming weeks and and months, are there any indicators that you'll be looking towards that will suggest to you whether or not this Canadian-led mediation effort is bearing any fruit? I think what we all do expect is to get signals on the side of the government that it had fully considered its position and maybe fit in directly with the facilitator, their concerns and how they want this whole dialogue to be structured, or if they have any other views, because it's going to be really disappointing for Cameroonians to know that they are just left with a conflict that has to go on and on and on without any plans to engage in dialogue. I think a, a positive sign is that in the government's release in which it made the U-turn on the Canadian facilitation, it also did say clearly that it's the responsibility uh, that the initiative for resolving the Anglophone conflict should normally come from the Cameroonian people and from the government itself and its institutions which legitimately functioning in the country. So in a sense, the government has not fully shut the door, but it probably is thinking that it needed to consider wider implications and ensure that this is something that's been driven uh, by the Cameroonian people and Cameroonian institutions, as it referred to in its statement. All right. Thank you so much for your time. I can hear the roosters crowing in the background where you are in Cameroon, suggesting <laughs> to me that it's evening time. So evening thank time. you uh, for for your time and go feed those roosters. Thank you very much, Mark.
Thank you for listening to Global Dispatches. Our show is produced by me, Mark Leon Goldberg, and edited and mixed by Levi Sharp. If you have questions or comments, please email us using the contact button on globaldispatchespodcast.com. Before you go, do take a moment to show your support for the show by becoming a premium subscriber. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, you can do so with a couple taps of your thumb. If you're listening elsewhere, you can go to patreon.com slash global dispatches. We rely on support from listeners to continue to do what we do far into the future. And by becoming a premium subscriber, you will unlock access to our entire archive of hundreds and hundreds of episodes. Please rate or review the show on Apple Podcasts. <laughs>